This morning is going to be very strange in two different ways, okay? So if you're new, this is your first time here, my apologies, because it's about to be an unusual morning, okay? Um, uh, There's going to be two reasons it's going to be weird. One is because of our subject matter, and then second is because we're going to do this Wizard of Oz style, meaning... I'm going to only be down front for about five minutes, and then I'm going to go behind the curtain. And I'm going, to, I'm going to speak to you from up there in the booth, because what I want to show you in the scriptures just needs to be visually seen. And it's too complicated to like have somebody else bouncing around in the Bible. So I need to be controlling the laptop. And so you'll just listen to my voice and, and look at the words on the screen. And I'm very sorry you don't get to look at me, which I know is what you'd rather be doing, but it's just not going to be an option this morning, okay? Okay. Um, do you guys know the name William Hurst? What is he famous for? Newspapers. Newspapers. He made his money in newspapers. Yep. And then, do you guys know what the Hurst Castle is? Have you heard of this? So he built this. It's called the Hurst Castle. It built this ridiculous, lavish, kind of, you know, very unusual home for himself. And it's famous because it's huge and it's sprawling and it's the kind of thing you've never done. You're always adding rooms and doing stuff. And one of the things that he did in his in his castle, or so is the story at least, is that he wanted a private zoo. So on this, you know, lavish, extravagant place, he, he, or for this extravagant place, he contracts with some big game hunter to go to Africa and to capture him a lion and bring it back. And he envisioned when he did this that there would just be this amazing, majestic, terrifying lion, the king of the jungle, living on his property. Um, but instead, what he finds that he has is this mopey, listless, um, disappointing lion in a cage. And so he calls his big game hunter and says, you sold me a bum lion. Um, I wanted like a, you know, I wanted a better lion than the one that you got me. So he said, well, let me, let me come take a look. And so the game hunter comes and he, and he examines the enclosure and he sees the environment in which this lion is living and he says, well, I see your problem here. There's no problem with the lion. The problem is that you have your lion in a cage right next to these monkeys. And all day long, these monkeys are just throwing garbage at him and mocking him and teasing him. He said, you want your lion to be a lion? Let him out of his cage and put him in there with the monkeys. Okay? <laughs> and then you'll get what you're looking for. Okay? Well, I tell you that story because I'd say, I think that sometimes we've tended to take the scriptures and put them in a cage. That we've made the word of God far more boring than it is by taking all of the weird stuff and just domesticating it. And just making it be like banal and simple and we just explain away all the weirdness. So what we're left with is a tame lion, is a domesticated lion that is safer. And there's a, you know, I understand the advantages to doing that. And there are plenty of things in the scriptures that to a modern mind, and I am thoroughly, sorry if that just made your microphone thing weird, sorry. That to a, to a modern mind like mine, there are some things that were like, ah, that's so odd. I don't know what to do with that. But so this morning, we're going to open the cage a little bit, okay? And then it will be very strange from that moment on, okay? So we, uh, last week, we talked about um, that David, some of David's mighty men or some of the, you know, his primary kind of military commanders. You might guess remember at the very end of the chapter we looked at, there's all these stories about them killing giants and killing giants and they killed all these guys. The Rapha and we talked about the Anakites and, um, and I gave you, I just kind of opened the door on the Nephilim and I kind of dropped just a couple of hints about that and then I decided to move on. 
Um, but I'm going to go back to that. Bob, Bob Blacksmith just came up to me and says, are you, you're not going to teach on the Nephilim, are you? <laughs> and the answer is, yes, we are. And it's, you guys, it's super weird. I'll explain it. I want, I want you to see the text on screen. Um, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go on a little bit of a tour down into super crazy land. What's that? Pseudepigrapha. We're going to jump into the pseudepigrapha. It's just going to be a freak show, okay? So it's going to be a freak show at lots of different levels. If you're new here, it's not normally this strange around here, okay? Um, but it's going to be today. So Genesis chapter 6, make your way to that, and it'll be on screen, and lots of other weird, weird, weird things besides, okay? So Genesis 6. All right, so what I, I happen to own, like, the greatest Bible software in the world and loads and loads of stuff. And so we're going to do it this because I want you to see it live. And we're gonna, we'll just talk through it. Um, you can still hear me okay, right? It's good. And then if you, we, I love to do this interactively. And even though you can't see me, I can see you and your bald spots. And, um, and so you guys can still ask questions. And Scott, are you down there? Scott? Okay, Shoyer is somewhere around. Did you, do you have a handheld? I can't, I, even, I can't even find Scott. Where's Scott? I do. He's somewhere. Okay. Well, where are you? You're hidden underneath me. Okay. So if you guys have questions, Scott, maybe go to the front so that people can see you and you can see them. And then if folks want to interact, just wave at Scott and then maybe speak in the mic because that way it'll be easier for me to hear you and we'll uh, see where you go. Okay. All right. So let's begin. So in Genesis 6, this is very early, of course, in the scriptures. There's this odd little moment. It says this, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them... The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. Okay, let's start with that. So something happened when there's these two different groups of persons who intermarry. And there are different ideas of what this might mean. We have these two, who are the two kind of, two populations we're seeing here? Yeah, sons of God, right here, sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Now that could mean a number of things. And I have always been a proponent of the simplest, least creepy and weird, most normal understanding of this. And that would be that what he's basically saying is the sons of God and the daughters of men, this is something like when Christians marry non-Christians. What makes that a plausible explanation is that very quickly in the book of Genesis, you get a sense of two different groups of people. You've got Cain and Abel, right? Cain is kind of the bad guy, the rebellious one, the disobedient one. And then Abel is the innocent sufferer. And then we replace Cain with Seth. And as, as things go on, you very quickly get the sense of like there's the good guys and the bad guys. Some have suggested, including myself, that all that's going on here is that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. This is just Christians marrying non-Christians, faithful people marrying unfaithful people. And that certainly is a thing that's been happening for a very long time. Okay, so far so good? Second thing that happens in this passage um, is that God decides we're going to have a short term on this, 120 years. Some people think that means that the, that the limits of the human lifespan are going to be 120 years. Nobody's going to live longer than that. Others think that what it means is that 120 years from now, from the, from the moment this was said, is when the flood would come. And in fact, what does come immediately after this is the flood. Then it says this, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, 
when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. Okay? Now you'll notice, if you guys are good scientists, this is, you know, correlation, not cause. It does not say that the Nephilim were the children. They were, they were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men, simply that they lived at the same time. Although it kind of seems to plant into your mind that they were the offspring, right? So whoever the sons of God are, having children with the daughters of men, that was either at the same time as the Nephilim or the Nephilim were that offspring. You got kind of like some of the interpretive range of possibilities there? Okay, and then what happens after this is in verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved, he made man on the earth, and then he floods the world and kills literally everyone, right? It's a massive thing. Well, and we'll come back to the implications of that shortly. Okay, so first, questions about that as the range of Genesis 6. Good enough for now? Okay. The simple, the easy, the safest interpretation is that it's like faithful people intermarrying with unfaithful people. And maybe, they, maybe the Nephilim are their kids, maybe they're not, but we don't know. But there is another possibility about what this means right here um, that's much, much weirder. And that is this, you guys. Every other time that the Old Testament uses the term sons of God, do you know what they're talking about? What is it, Michael? Angels or demons. Literally every other instance, what they're talking about, the sons of God are angelic beings, non-human spiritual creatures. It's always what that refers to. And that what this would be saying is that angels that themselves sin and thus become demons interbred with human beings. That demonic creatures that we would not have necessarily had any reason to think had the ability to, number one, have sex, or number two, have sperm that were compatible with human eggs, nevertheless impregnated and, gave, impregnated and fathered children such that there were some sort of a hybrid human-demonic creature on the earth, which perhaps are called, or what these Nephilim are. Do you understand why we prefer the option that this is Christians marrying non-Christians? Okay. Um, and so over the years, as people would kind of like suggest to me that that's probably what it means, I would always just kind of nod and smile at them because they were obviously lunatics. Um, however, I think that's what it means, which is exceptionally strange, very, very uncomfortable. But I want to I show you why that lunacy actually has a surprising amount of biblical credibility to it, okay? And in order to make that case, what we need to do is go to a very neglected book in the New Testament, namely the book of Jude. So if you flip over with me to Jude, and Jude's going to be at the very, you know, very close, right before Revelation, very near the end of your Bible. Jude is an odd little book. It's short, it's one chapter. And so if, if you say Jude 3, you don't mean Jude chapter 3, you mean Jude verse 3. And Jude comments on this. Jude is, I would say, probably the strangest book in the New Testament for a number of reasons, some of which we will touch on now. Um, and I'll show you what, what Jude has to say about this, and we're going to have to follow some of his reasoning and logic. All right, This is honestly where Jude, I believe, constrains the possibilities of Genesis 6 in a way that are a little uncomfortable to me. 
But nevertheless, we want to surrender to the scriptures and whatever it says. Okay, ready? So Jude 1, servant of Jesus Christ, da-da-da. And he's going to say this. We're going to skip, skip down. He says, Dear friends, though I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. He, he had something he meant to write, a note he planned to communicate. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. He was planning on writing letter A, and instead he wrote letter B, and what we have is letter B. And the reason he wrote letter B is because he's concerned about something. And here's what he's concerned about. Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. We'll come back to what that phrase means. But he, he's essentially saying there was something, a, a very, very old prediction, a very, very old prophecy that is coming to pass. Okay? We'll leave that there. Some, these certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have slipped in among you. This is very, if you've been in our Second Timothy series, this is what we've been talking about, right? The false teachers are coming. They're coming over the walls. The liars are among us. He characterizes them, excuse me, <clears throat> as godless men who change the grace of our God and their license for immorality, deny Jesus, all these. Okay, here's what he's going to say. He's going to give this bit of a history of Israel, um, some of the high points or, or maybe more honestly the low points. He's going to say in verse 6, he, he makes this kind of oblique reference to angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home and who have been subsequently kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. Okay, so he's saying there's this thing that his audience should be familiar with in which angels were supposed to stay in location A, but they left it to go into location B. They abandoned their own homes, were subsequently judged and imprisoned for what they did that was wrong. You got that so far? It doesn't say much about much. And there, there could be some, at this point, we could have speculation about which angels is he talking about. In fact, if you were just reading Jude and we hadn't already been to Genesis 6 at all, so that wasn't on your mind, what would you think he meant? And I'm peering over the wall to look at you guys here. What, do you, what would you think he was talking about? Anybody have a stab in the dark? Angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. Some have surmised that perhaps that's talking about the fall of Satan. Some perhaps could look at that as Genesis 3, when Satan comes into the garden, maybe he wasn't supposed to be there. There's been a variety of ideas put forward. But there's a little more data that we've got to catch. Okay, watch what happens. He continues in the next verse. So there's these angels who did this thing, whatever that was. It's kind of vague. In verse 7, he says... In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Now, when he says that, this is, you got to follow the logic here. It's not too many steps, but there is a one-step lump, jump. When he says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah was sexually immoral, that has a necessary implication for verse 6 it necessarily means that verse 6 was also an example of sexual immorality. Does this make sense? So I can't say, you know, if you're, if it's, oh, it would, you'd have to be sitting at a table for me to say, come sit at this other table. There's got to be another table in order for there to be another table. And so when Jude says in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah gave, gave itself up to sexual immorality, he is necessarily casting a sexual immorality cloak over verse 6. 
So whatever the heck was going on in verse 6 with these angels who didn't keep their position of authority but abandoned their own home and were subsequently judged, what they were doing necessarily was sexual in nature. You with me so far? And so, again, confirmation to the fact that that's even possible, which I don't think any of us would have ever surmised. Okay. Now, if you read and study Jude, then you would know, you might know, that he is, throughout his book, throughout this letter, he is drawing on some other sources, but he has a favorite source matter that he alludes to over and over and over again. Does anybody know what Jude loves to quote and draw statements and ideas and language from? Does anybody know, or does anybody know who he likes to, who he's drawing from? Did you say Moses? So he's, okay, that's good. So he's going to allude to a book that we, or he's going to say something that shows up in another book known as the Assumption of Moses. We're not going to go that, down that particular strange avenue today, but it, he does draw from him, from that, from this thing called the Assumption of Moses. You see it most explicitly down here in verse, where are we at? I thought I highlighted this. Um, right here, verse 14. You have that? Okay. When he says Enoch, the seventh from Adam. He's referring to a human being, Enoch. What is Enoch famous for, you guys? Right? You said never dying. Is that what you're saying? He was just like, walked with God and, and was no more, right? So Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. And then he makes this statement. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way, and of all the harsh words and ungodly sinners, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That statement right there that, that he calls prophecy, this is technical language for divinely inspired. This statement does not exist in the Old Testament. There's no place that you're going to find that. Enoch is described in the book of Genesis. We don't have, we don't have him speaking any words at all, much less these words. But he is saying that Enoch, the man, and that's important, bear this in mind, he's, he's describing a person. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, said this. And he says, see, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all the ungodly, ungodly acts they've done in an ungodly way, da, 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 all that, okay? Now, we don't have Enoch's original speech. It's not, it's not recorded in the scriptures. This is not biblical data. And yet, he gives it the title, he gives it the inscription that it is prophecy, now, so let me, let me try to help you be comfortable with something. I believe that there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, and that every word, is the, every word in the Scriptures is the inspired Word of God. However, I don't think that 100% of everything God has ever said is captured in the Scriptures, right? Jesus had conversations with his disciples that were not recorded. Presumably, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had conversations with one another that they didn't write down, Right? So we believe that the scriptures, the 66 books, are everything that he wanted captured for us, that we would know it in every age among every people group, right? This is his word. We have a, we have a, we, I believe what we, what we would call a closed canon, right? But it doesn't mean that it's the only things he ever said. Jesus said other things that were not, and John makes this explicit. He says, listen, I ran out of paper. I don't have time to write down everything that Jesus ever said or tell you a story about everything he ever did, right? So there's more that he said and did that didn't make it into the canon. And this prophecy from Enoch perhaps is one of them. Okay, is that, y'all cool with that so far? 
But what, here's what the thing is. We do have a group of writings, and they're called the pseudepigrapha. And what that means essentially is like a pseudonym. If you write under a pseudonym, what does that mean? What's a pseudonym? Fake name. That's like a fake name, okay? The pseudepigrapha are writings that allege to be written by one person, but in fact are not. And we have a writing that is known as, it's, it's, it's grouped under the heading of pseudepigrapha, known as First Enoch. And First Enoch is weird. But First Enoch contains this exact quote, this exact phrase. So take a look at it here. If I go to First Enoch, da-da-da-da-da, we're going to get down, skip through it here a little bit. Here's first, this is First Enoch. This is not part of the Bible. It's not part of the canon. It should not be included in the Old Testament. But it says this, And behold, he comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all the flesh of all the works of their ungodliness, which they have ungodly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's what Jude is saying, right? There's no question. It's, I mean, it's word for word. What first Enoch says is what, is what Jude says. You with me so far? We good? Now, I got to do a little bit of a jump. It doesn't necessarily follow from that that Jude is quoting the book of first Enoch. They might both be quoting a common source, right? So it could be that Enoch said these words, and then they were recorded in first Enoch, and Jude also had that common source and is not quoting from what we would think of as the pseudepigrapha, but is just quoting from some other unknown source that, capt- that accurately captured what Enoch had said. Or it could be he's quoting from First Enoch. What makes that uncomfortable is that there are things in First Enoch that nobody likes, that we really don't like, and that are very, very odd, very, very strange, and that, that he, he is conferring on whatever his source is, whether it's First Enoch or... Um, some other unknown source, he's conferring enormous dignity upon it, not only by quoting it here, but he repeatedly, in fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go like this so you can see this. He repeatedly is drawing language from that, that shows up in First Enoch. So if I were to go over here, if you were to watch this, um, look at what he does here. So he, he's describing these false teachers and he uses all these illustrations for them. He says that they are, among other things, wandering stars. Well, first Enoch talks about how the good stars do not change their orbit, right? They rise in order. They rise and set in order. He talks about um, how um, the, 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 these men are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Well, first Enoch, in that same passage, talks about um, the water and the clouds and the dew and the rain that come. The clouds are supposed to give rain, but these guys don't. First Enoch is going to talk about the trees that cover themselves with green leaves and bear fruit. And he describes these people as being like autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. First Enoch is going to talk about the sea and the rivers are like fixed and uniform and unchanging. But these people are like the wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, right? Over and over and over again uh, throughout, throughout Jude, he is drawing language that exists in First Enoch and, as we speculate, may also exist in an in a unnamed source that is perhaps some kind of a subset of what we find in First Enoch. All right? Now, here's why all that's important. Jude is unmistakably drawing on Enoch, maybe as contained in First Enoch, 
but he's certainly drawing on a source that we find there. And first Enoch writes extensively and explicitly about these angels. So take a look. We're going to go back. This is Genesis 6, and this is first Enoch over here. Again, the stuff on the right is not Bible, but the stuff on the right is the source that Jude is drawing from when he does write Bible. You with me so far? Here's what first Enoch says. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. Okay, let me get a whole bunch of proper names so we can skip all that. Verse chapter 7. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives and each chose for himself one and they began to go unto them and to defile themselves with them. They became pregnant. They bare great giants, whose heights was 3,000 L's, consumed all the acquisitions of men. The giants turned against them and devoured mankind. They began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish. It's just evil, wretched, terrible, bad things happen. Okay. Enoch is explicitly resolving the potential ambiguity. This is not merely non-Christians marrying Christians. This is demons and human women. There's no way around that that is what first Enoch is saying. It seems very, very reasonable that Jude thinks that that is true. And when he writes scripture, he is ensconcing into his, uh, into this, that he is, he is describing this, these angels not keeping their position of authority in terms of sexual immorality. Because, and he is drawing from what Enoch has said, which limits our, limits our options here. Okay. Now, a couple more stops, and then we're going we're gonna to watch a quick video. What it seems that this means, and what's actually really stunning to me about this, and it gives maybe some insight into the work of Satan in the world, is that earlier than Genesis 6, way back here, let me just go like this, way back in Genesis 3, God said, hang on, dun, dun, dun. where did he talk to the snake? Um, when he talks to the snake, he says, because you've done, this is after the fall, after sin has begun to ruin everything, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl in your belly, you'll eat dust all the days of your life, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. That is the word seed right there. Your offspring, your seed. And he, singular male offspring, will crush the head of the snake and you will strike his heel. We call this the Proto-Euangelion. It's the first mention, really, of the atoning work of Christ in which he will defeat, this, defeat the snake. And it seems as though Satan, knowing that his defeat, or at least his opposition, would be coming through a human male child born of a woman, enacted a counter-strategy. What, do you, what would that counter strategy be that would connect Genesis 3 to Genesis 6? <coughs> Say it again. Say it, Judy. Basically, a cross. Yes. You can't have a full That's right. Okay, what Judy's saying is basically what, what, what perhaps what we're seeing here is that Satan understanding that his opposition... And the one who would seek to defeat him is going to be born of a woman. What he's going to do is pollute the wombs of all the humans. He's going to so pollute the gene pool with these demonic half-breed creatures 
that the plan cannot proceed. And I know that sounds super odd, but here's what's interesting about that. Did you ever wonder what on earth happened that was so catastrophic that God literally kills every living person on the earth and starts again? That it could be that what we're seeing played out in Genesis 6 and clarified in Jude is that Satan's strategy to pollute the human race, to cause the, to cause the race to be so um, corrupted that he had to wipe the whole thing out and then start it all over again. And it seems that that might be exactly what happens. And which is why not only here back in Genesis 6 is God's strategy after these Nephilim come, who, if they are the offspring, when God saw how great the wickedness on the earth had become, that every inclination and thoughts of his heart was only evil. This is, this is this race of people that are just wretched and wicked. He wipes them all out. And then every other time you find God giving instructions to the people of Israel, kill them all, kill them all, kill every one of them. They are descendants of the Nephilim. They are descendants of the Anakites. They are these Rapha people. And that might explain, and I'm not, I'm not 100% certain on any of this, um, but it does seem this is the direction that this thing points, okay? That there's something here that God is seeking to do to push back this wretched wickedness that is infiltrated. Not only in that age, but then you get this really terrifying statement here where it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. That's really strange because everyone who is a descendant of the Nephilim necessarily should have been killed in the flood. And yet there are some that either survived the flood, which I don't think is the case, because the Bible is pretty clear that every living thing that has breath in its nostrils dies. But perhaps there is a subsequent invasion and we have more of this half-breed offspring. Okay? That seems to be the most uncaged and you might say unhinged take on this. Okay? But I want to give you one reason to think that I might not be a complete lunatic. And that is this. Um, many of you, I think, admire as I do the guys of the Bible Project, and they did a whole series on spiritual beings. And not only did they do a, pro, do a series on it, but they did a, um, a podcast. It's kind of a little bit longer form. And they give about 10 minutes to talking about this. And so we're going to play this. Um, and this is just purely um, a self-injection of credibility. That's all I'm doing right now, okay? So here we go. Listen to these guys talking about it. This one is about demon sex. Oh boy. Um, so, <laughs> what yes. we say in the video is one of the, mm, yeah. one of the strangest stories in the Bible is totally. in Genesis 6. Yes, it is. First few verses. Strange there. to us. Strange, Strange to us. Strange to the modern Westerners. Yes. Yes. And it's the story, and if you've watched um, the Noah's Ark one done by. Uh, yeah, directed by Aronofsky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They really play into this whole world of. Correct. Uh, that yeah. it says the sons of God yeah. came and had yeah. sex with human ladies yeah. and gave birth to the Nephilim yeah. and this story is for a modern person is so strange for yeah. many reasons now what we do in the video is we explain look in the ancient world mm -hmm. these civilizations these powerful civilizations many of them had in their mythology yeah. that they were founded yeah. by half god half man yeah. kind of warrior kings that are giant G giant and they're big yes. yep 
Yep. And, um, yeah. and in fact, you can start to trace that yeah. theme and see that they yeah. are all over the biblical narrative yeah. in, in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, so we talk about that and how yeah. then yeah. this this part of Genesis just smacks of this like political theology of just yeah. like, hey, those warrior kings yeah. that are, yeah. they're bad news. Yeah, they're not to be worshipped or honored. They're not awesome. They're like, yeah. they're demon possessed essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you want to take it literally, yeah. they are the spawn of yeah. fallen yeah. spiritual beings. Yeah. You take it figuratively and they are just, they're possessed <laughs> yeah, yeah, by yeah. it. Yeah, right. Um, now the, let's talk about it literally for a second. (laughs) How, how do demons have sex with women? I mean, they're completely different type of, of being, um, they don't, I would, do they have sexual organs? The whole thing. Yeah. Like, so how does that work? How does that work? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, let's step back. Um, uh, the biblical storyline, the biblical view of the world assumes that heaven and earth are distinct spheres, but that are meant to overlap and occasionally do. Yeah. Um, and so the spiritual beings, it's hard because our English word spiritual means now non-physical. Yeah. That's not true hmm. in the biblical view of the world. Um, spiritual beings take on physical form at many points of the biblical story. Okay. So let's just talk about the good ones. Right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, well, like um, the chair beam in the garden. Chair beam in the garden. Yeah, it was, they yeah. were guarding the garden. They yeah. weren't just some like hologram there. Yeah, totally. They yeah, were the, yeah, actual they, beasts. They, yeah, they kill you, <laughs> right? Yeah, presumably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what if they're guards? If yeah. they're like bouncers at the door <laughs> yeah, Eden, like the Eden bouncers that they won't let you in. Um, so uh, think about other other good ones. When um, these three, what are called the three men, visit Abraham oh. in Genesis mm-hmm. chapter eighteen. Yeah. Um, we're told in Genesis 19 that two of them are angels. Yeah. Um, and they sat down and Abraham made them a meal and mm. they ate together under a tree. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, in Genesis 19, when those two angels go to the city of Sodom and meet up with Lot, mm. they're quite physical. Mm. Um, Lot tells them to come in you know, to his house. And then the men of Sodom come and want to rape the angels. That's, yeah, another strange story. So, and actually, we we can talk about that more because the Sodom and Gomorrah story in Genesis 19 is designed as a perverted inversion of the sons of God and the women in Genesis 6. Mm. Um, Because it's humans and spiritual beings involving sex uh, in a a destructive way. Um, So, um, and it happens in the New Testament too. When angels appear, they take on mm. physical appearance and can do stuff. Yeah. So um, it's not the case that angels don't have bodies. I see. They have different kinds of bodies. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, mm. right? When he says, what mm. kind of what body is the resurrection body? Yeah. And he says, well, listen, there's lots of different kinds of bodies. Mm. And he starts talking, you know, there's the stars and birds and creatures and humans. So... In the biblical imagination, spiritual beings have bodies. Mm. They are different kinds of bodies. Um, so they're not like ghosts in the way we think of no, spirits and no. ghouls and no. sprites. And no. Just I, li- and listen, I'm not saying I find any of this easy yeah. to process. <laughs> I find this very difficult to process. Sure. But I'm just trying to be honest with what the biblical authors are saying and what yes. they mean. And in the, in the Bible, th- spiritual beings regularly appear in physical form. Yeah. Um, and, don't, uh, and, and they appear... 
like humans. They look like humans. They look like humans. Correct. So um, the sons of God in Genesis 6, um, uh, verses 1 and 2, the sons of God is the Old Testament phrase to talk about spiritual beings. Uh, it's parallel to the host of heaven, uh, to the yeah. phrase angels, and, and so on. Um, so, I, you know, the plain sense reading of the phrase sons of God. Um, okay, so that's one layer. Sorry. Well, sorry. My brain's going to do too mm. many things. The plain sense reading is spiritual beings uh, sexually abuse women. They yeah. take women. And then um, create the Nephilim. And, and, well, we'll talk about that in a second. Okay. So one, another thing is that Genesis 6 is designed according to a design pattern to m imitate Genesis 3. Mm. In Genesis 3, you have a woman okay. and a spiritual being having a conversation the woman sees that something is good and she takes it for herself. That's mm -hmm. the vocabulary of Genesis 3, verse 6. Yeah. Genesis 6 comes along as an inversion. Now it's not a, a woman taking as she talks to a spiritual being. It's the spiritual beings see that women are good mm. and they take for themselves. Mm. So it's their... So little mirrors to, of each other. Supposed to see that this these yes. are dual rebellions of yeah. sorts. It's intensifying the the nature and scope of the combined human and spiritual rebellion. Mm. If Genesis three is the first wave of spiritual human rebellion, mm. Genesis six is the next wave. So one thing I'm thinking about then is that in the Genesis in these stories in Genesis one through eleven, the rebellions are always a have a spiritual component. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just something I don't generally. Yeah, that's right. Really dwell Actually, on. think it through. The three ways of rebellion are the garden, with the snake, and the woman. Yeah. Genesis six, which is the lead up to the flood story. Yeah. And that's right after you finish the story about Cain and Lamech building this city built on human bloodshed. Yeah. So you get you get outside the garden, you get another human and spiritual rebellion, mm -hmm. and then you get to Babylon. Yeah. And what's foregrounded is the human rebellion, and you have to wait. Till later in the narrative, till you see that that was also a spiritual rebellion. The Babylon well. itself ba was the building also. So all three steps of Genesis one to eleven, three uh, chapters four and six, chapter eleven are combined human spiritual rebellions. Yeah. Um, so that's the broader context. Okay. So it's not strange in the biblical story w what's happening. It's tragic. Yeah. But it's it's within the imagination. Uh, another the last confirmation is Jesus' brother, um, Jude, hmm. who wrote the oh. epistle, mm -hmm. the letter, short letter in the New Testament. Uh, and he actually uh, pairs these stories together, the story of the sons of God and Sodom and Gomorrah, interestingly. Hmm. He does. Mm -hmm. He does. He sees them as parallel, uh, design patterns with each other. Hmm. He talks about uh, angels who didn't keep their own domain, hmm. but abandoned their proper abode. This he, Genesis 6. Mm -hmm. He keeps in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment day. Hmm. So, and then he goes on. That's just like Sodom and Gomorrah, hmm. where they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Hmm. Um, w w which is referring to humans wanting to rape angels. Yeah. So he sees Genesis 6 and 19 <laughs> as perverted inversions of each other. And notice in that story in Sodom, Lot, Lot um, says, goes outside to talk with these terrible men. And then he says, yeah, don't rape the guys. Um, he says, here, 
I have two wonderful daughters. Have yeah. them. Yeah. So you have, once again, think this, it's all based it's so on Genesis. Weird. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's, it's terrible. Um, but it's the inversion. <laughs> Instead of the daughters of men being the object of the men of Sodom, yeah. their desire, it's all inverted. Mm. Um, but just like those beautiful women in Genesis 6, Lot wants to give his beautiful daughters. So, um, I, again, I'm not saying this is easy to process, but this is how Jude read the story. Um, this is how every ancient Jewish interpreter from the time period of Jesus interpreted these stories about spiritual beings having sex with women in the mm. Dead Sea Scrolls. And yeah. It was normal. So, and I think it's supposed to be uncomfortable, right? It's crazy. Yeah, it's not like, oh, ancient people so primitive. Yeah. Like, and it's, that's, it's crazy. Yeah. But they also lived in a world where um, it was normal for the ancient empires around them to claim that they're claim that heritage founders and kings. Yeah. So the most famous. All right. That's probably good enough. All right. I'm not making this up. Okay. That's my point. So strange things. And I, and I just, I bring it out here because when we, uh, one thing that has helped me to make sense of the, there's so many things about this, but I think we tend to be really uncomfortable when God's like wipe them all out. Right. That is a major question that gets raised. But you guys, every time he issues the command to wipe them all out, this is who he's talking about. This is who he's wiping out. These evil people that are perhaps part of Satan's strategy to destroy the possibility of the Messiah coming. I think that's what's going on there. So I would just let you guys go and talk about this on the drive home. And um, you're welcome to call me or email me if you want to push back or just do whatever you like about that. But that is what I alluded to very briefly last week. Next week... It'll be more normal again, so I'm very sorry if you brought a friend this week. All right, see ya.